Please open your Bibles to James chapter 4. You'll find the notes this morning's message in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text in the back of the notes. I want to welcome those of you in the other rooms, those of you joining us online. As we continue, um, probably the pinnacle exhortation in the book of James. As we um, go through verses 5 to 10 in rapid fire... Our imperative after imperative after imperative. As James has been addressing numerous topics here, he's finally calling us to do something. He's, he's urging us to humble ourselves and to draw near to God. Humble ourselves and draw near to God. I'd like to begin by reading chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. We'll have a word of prayer and we'll dive in. James chapter 4, 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter return to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Lord God, I pray that you would give us humility, that we might be exalted by you. I pray that you'd open our eyes to see the ways in which we have been faithless, the ways in which we have sought to be friends with the world, the ways in which we have left you for other pleasures, other goods. And I pray that you would humble us, that you would bring us back to yourself, that you would restore us, that you would do it for your name's sake and for our blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. As I noted earlier, the section in right now, specifically the imperatives that come starting in verse 7 through 10, is the rhetorical peak of the book. It's the strongest call to action. We need to track the flow of the thought of how we got here. James has been addressing a number of issues in this book. If you remember in chapter 2, there's the uh, prioritizing of the rich, the end of chapter 2, there are people who found ways to say they believe but don't bear fruit. And starting in chapter 3, he zeroes in on the issues that create conflict and the issues surrounded maturity in the body, wisdom in the body. Those who teach in the church, who use their tongues so readily, need to use their tongues in a godly way. There's a danger that the tongue can pour forth bitter and sweet water, such things, my brothers, ought not to be. 
We can bless God with our tongues. We can curse our brothers with our tongues. James is concerned of that duplicity. Then at the end of chapter 3, he addresses the issue of wisdom. And he makes it clear that just because you think you have wisdom doesn't mean you do. There is a wisdom from above and there's a wisdom from below. And James, following the teaching of Jesus Christ, his older brother, keeps coming at it that you will know the tree by its fruit. So look at 3.13, who is wise and understanding among you, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. True, godly wisdom produces meek works, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. I, I highlight this because that bitter jealousy and selfish ambition are what form the basis of the conflict in chapter 4. There's a connection between worldly wisdom here and the fights and quarrels in chapter 4. Look at chapter 4. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this? Your passions that are at war within you. You desire, selfish desire, they're part of the same word family, and you covet. So the world's wisdom, he says, is rooted in desire, wanting, coveting, and then it's about how to achieve those things. And we talked about how sometimes what you desire isn't a bad thing in and of itself. How much do you want it? What wisdom will you use to pursue it? That's the issue. One set of wisdom leads to conflict. We fight. We quarrel. We strive with each other for the things we want. Mitchell McClure two weeks ago highlighted this. It's as simple as driving to church. You're running late. You don't want to look stupid. You want it to be respectable. And so you snap and growl at your kids, warning them they better behave. And you can admonish your children in a good way, but I'm talking about when you cross them and you're growling. You want something. I want to be respectable. I don't want to be ashamed. I don't want to be embarrassed. And I'll fight for it. It's not always wanting bad things. Sometimes it can be wanting good things too much, pursuing them in the wrong way. That's the source, James says, of all of our conflict in the body. All of our conflict amongst each other. From a child throwing a temper tantrum because they were told no all the way up the ladder. We also then learned last week that that same desire ruling the heart is spiritual adultery. We come and we ask God for things, not because we want to worship Him and enjoy them for His sake, but because we worship the things. And, and we come faithlessly. We come as spiritual adulterers. The ESV's translation, you adulterous people, it's footnote, far better, you adulteresses. And it links with the entire Old Testament theme of Israel as God's faithless wife. I want to rehash this because today is what to do about it. So what James is saying, to put it as simply as I can, is when you adopt the world's values... When you adopt the world's wisdom and how to pursue those values, when you come to God wanting the gifts more than the giver, when you're willing to fight for what you want, quarrel for what you want, bicker for what you want, you're guilty of spiritual adultery. You have flirted with, returned to the world which Christ died to free you from. And James is writing, remember, to the broad church, spread abroad. He's not writing to a particular church. This isn't a problem of a particular church. It suggests that James thinks these are endemic problems for the people of God everywhere and always. 
So before you too quickly think this is a good message for the person at the end of the pew, the end of the row, consider its appropriateness for you and for me. The reason why I highlight this is there is a way out. There's greater grace. This isn't a message just of condemnation. This is a message of grace. But if you don't realize you need the grace, you're not going to avail yourself of it. So I can't imagine a worse scenario than thinking you're in fellowship with God, thinking you're at peace with him. And yet, according to verse 4, you adulterous people do not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It is entirely possible that there are some here this morning not at peace with God, but his enemies, because they love things more than him, because we have idols in our hearts. And there, there's, there's grace for that. But the worst thing I can imagine is thinking you're at peace and ignoring God's call to restoration. So I'd urge every one of us to, to soberly consider the ways in which we go after the world. Okay, all of that is, is introduction was not able to finish my text last week. We talked about the nature of spiritual adultery. We talked about how when we worship other things, when we value other things, when we prize them more than God, we're, we're like a faithless wife. In fact, I suggested last week that God created the marriage union in one respect to give us a metaphor, to give us an illustration of what being in covenant with him is like. We learned in Ephesians, did we not, that Genesis 2, for this reason a man shall leave his mother and father, is first and foremost, about Christ and his church. It's not as though when God wants to explain what being in a covenant relationship with him is like, he says, oh, it's sort of like marriage. Rather, marriage was made, so we could actually say when, when, when a husband or a wife is faithless, when you experience that pain, that's a little bit like, that's sort of what it's like when we break faith with the living God. That's, that's the diagnosis. So let's pick it up in verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell on us? Now verse 5 is the most challenging text in the Greek text as regards to translation. I imagine some of your translations take it different ways. The first problem is the ESV puts it in quotation marks. He yearns jealously. But there is no text that comes close to saying that. So the first problem to deal with is, do you suppose the scripture says, well, okay, where does the scripture say this? Is this a quotation? I don't think it's a quotation. Um, I believe it's a summary of the teaching of the Old Testament. The second question we've got to deal with is, what spirit is he talking about? Is he talking about the Holy Spirit he put within us? Is he talking about the spirit of man within us? And perhaps some of your translations even go another way, suggesting that it's actually speaking about man's spirit being envious. I won't go into all those details, but I will try to tell you what I think the right answer is as we move forward. But first, let's deal with the issue of the scripture citation. And you're blank here, point A. Oh, no, point one. God jealously yearns for our faithfulness. God jealously yearns for our faithfulness. And point A, the scripture testifies to his jealousy for his people. I think what the ESV puts in quotation marks here, and there's no quotation marks in Greek, the translators have to do it as they see fit, is actually a summary of the Old Testament's teaching. This is part of the reason I don't think the reference is to the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is only given broadly to the people of God under the New Covenant. 
The old covenant, the Holy Spirit was sent individually, case by case, and temporarily. So if James is saying, does not the, whole, the Old Testament teach us that God jealously yearns over the spirit that he's caused to dwell within us, it seems odd to me that it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. Um, I don't think that's what it's saying. But the scripture does testify to this. Turning your Bibles to Exodus. Turning your Bibles to Exodus. And while you turn there, we've got to address the fact that, in English at least, jealousy is not considered a positive thing. Right? We don't normally speak of jealousy as a good thing. If, someone's, if I say someone's very jealous, you're likely to think something negative about them. And so we've got to come to grips with the fact that God clearly declares he is a jealous God. No, no uncertain terms, no apology, and that is a good thing. It's a glorious thing. And we've got to wrap our heads around how that is so. So let's go to the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20. And it's right there in the Ten Commandments where God admits this. Chapter 20, and in verse 4 and 5, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, there it is. Freely admits it. Turn over to Exodus 34, even more plainly, here at the golden calf incident. Not only is God very jealous, he makes a bolder claim in Exodus 34, 14. And this fits perfectly with our context of spiritual adultery. The people have made a golden calf. They've bowed down to it. They've been unfaithful to the Lord their God. And in that context, the Lord says... You shall not work, you sh- for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. So not only is God jealous, but it's his name. This is getting core to his identity. So what, what are we to make of this? How, how do we make sense of God's jealousy and see it as a good thing? Because it is a very good thing. Well, your first blank here is God's jealousy should comfort us. I think there are two ways we can think about God's jealousy, two implications for us at least. And the first should comfort us. In Deuteronomy 32.10, the Lord makes this astounding claim. He kept him as the apple of his eye. The, the phrase apple of your eye is actually a biblical expression. The cornea of your eye. And you imagine how tenderly you guard it. What lengths you would go to to block a projectile or something from, from striking it. When it does get hit by something, you get a mote of dust in there, how much effort you take to try to cleanse it out. The Lord indicates we are as precious to him. He guards us as the apple of his eye. In Zechariah chapter 2, the Lord says this, For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. God's God's saying he is that jealous. Think of jealousy as, as zeal, The Greek word just means zeal for something. I am very jealous for my children's safety. I think that's a good thing. And the Lord says that his people, he is jealous for is the apple of his eye. Or you can think of the good shepherd, so jealous in one sense, full of zeal for his flock that he leaves the 99 to go for the one who is lost. Precisely because the Lord God is jealous for his bride, for his people, 
he will hold us fast. Take comfort. What zeal does the Lord Jesus fight against the false shepherds? With what zeal will he come back and strike down his foes and vindicate his people? Take comfort in God's jealousy. In fact, let me give you an illustration of this leading to our next point. 18 years ago, I heard a sermon on the jealousy of God at Grace Community Church by Phil Johnson. Um, I remember it because on the basis of that sermon, I got engaged that day. That's a story I can tell in the ABF hour, but no, I, I remember it. And Phil was likening God's jealousy, and your second blank here is fear. God's jealousy should comfort us. God's jealousy should make us fear. And I think that's the appropriate way. There's two implications. And he likened it to his own wife. And, and Phil said that, he said, I'll just speak in the first person. He said, I'm not very observant. I don't pick up on social cues that well. He and I are alike in that way. And he said, when I'm in a department store, sometimes the, the, the lady behind the counter is just a little too forward, a little too friendly. I don't pick up on it. I'm oblivious. And my wife, he said, will saddle up next to me, put her arm around me as if to say, back off, he's mine. And he said, I love that. I, I, I take comfort in that. That's fantastic. I love feeling my wife's jealousy for me in that way. He said, likewise, few things upset my wife more than hearing about men in the ministry um, being disqualified from the ministry, leaving their wives for other women. And periodically, when Phil's wife would hear about one such occasion, he said she'd look at me and go, Phil, you ever do that to me? I'll kill you. <laughs> he said, and I, I get afraid. And that's exactly, I think, a good illustration of the two ways in which God's jealousy should fill us with comfort. There's an enemy roaring around like a roaring lion seeking to devour, and God says he's jealous for his people. But that's not the implication of the jealousy of God that's in view here. God is also jealous like a husband for his wife's fidelity. And that's the context we have here. You think of the lengths the Lord goes to protect his people, to destroy their foes, to strike down false shepherds, to to vindicate them, to redeem them. He gave up his own life for them. What do you think he will do for their faithlessness. How great will he care about their betrayal? God's jealousy should make us fear. You think about God's jealousy and at the golden calf instant, Exodus 34, he was ready to kill all of Israel and start over with Moses. And even as Moses intercedes, the Levites walk through the camp cutting down Father, mother, brother, sister, the people have to drink the smashed up idol. There are consequences because God is jealous for his glory and for his people. And so James begins by saying, do you suppose it is to no purpose? The scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. And the Old Testament is full of bold declarations. Yes, God is jealous. He's full of zeal for his people. Point B here, he made us and jealously yearns for us. I do believe the spirit is the spirit of man, which means I think what he's saying is, do you not know God jealously yearns for our hearts and our souls to be devoted to him? In the same way that a husband or a wife longs and wants pure devotion from their spouse. It's a good thing to want that. It's a good thing to seek that. It's a good thing to desire that. And God earnestly yearns. I mean, think of the strong language for our faithfulness and fidelity to him. 
And that should comfort us. But if we're being adulteresses, if we're playing the whore, what does that mean negatively? That's where James is going. He's backing us into a corner, as it were. And he's going to give us the way out. He made us and jealously yearns for us. Genesis 2, 7, the Lord formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath or the spirit or the wind of life. And the man became a living creature. Zechariah 12, 1, thus says the Lord who stretched out the heavens and formed the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. So your first blank, the Lord formed the spirit of man in him. He made us and he made us for his glory. He made us to be in relationship with him. He redeems us. He sends his son to die for us. And then we turn back like a dog to his vomit and we go back to our old master, our old lovers. And God is jealous and will not be mocked. He formed the spirit of man in him. The Lord is passionate about our fidelity. Turn, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This is a metaphor the New Testament uses in more than one place. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Apostle Paul writing to a, a the Corinthian church, which you know if you've been in Dave Lample's class, has had their share of problems. 2 Corinthians 11. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. It's our exact metaphor James is using. It's the exact metaphor James is using. And so I just want you to understand the betrayal on our part, the, the, the evil on our part that is implicit when we fool around with, we flirt with the world, when we consider the blood of the covenant which sanctifies us a common thing. You remember from our study in Ephesians, our state in the past. I want, to, I want to frame it for you this way. You were dead, you and I were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We, we were dead we were enslaved. We were slaves to our passions and our desires. We were headed for wrath. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. In kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
And at what cost did God do this? What enabled God to make us alive and redeem us? He sent his son to die for us. So that was our state. We were dead, enslaved. Jesus Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God, dies for us. God raises us with him. He seats us with him. And then we go back to the world following the desires and passions of it. Or we think we'll do both. You know, Wednesdays I give God, Thursdays are my time. Or however you're going to try to parse it out. And James assumes this problem is pervasive enough in the entire dispersed church that he can just broadly say, you adulteresses, to his entire audience. To lesser or greater degrees, we all do this. We all do this. And so we would hear the rebuke, well, God is jealous. If you trust that you can't lose your salvation, that's because of God's jealousy. He won't let you slip through his hand. That same zeal causes him to deal with his bride when she is faithless. The Lord passionately is concerned about our fidelity. So now let's go to point number two. God's grace calls us to profound repentance. God's grace calls us to profound repentance. Now, I think James assumes at this point our hand is over our mouth and we're saying, uh-oh. I mean, after all, consider the consequences of Israel's harlotry. The ten northern tribes sent away, according to Jeremiah 3, with a decree of divorce. The two southern tribes sent away in the Babylonian captivity. Yes, he restored them. Yes, he brought them back. But there were consequences. And I think James is expecting us, the reader, to go, uh-oh, what will happen to me given the greater sacrifices by which I was brought near, given the greater privilege I have in the new covenant? And what he says here in verse 6 is meant to be a lifeline. Good news. But he gives more grace. The Greek literally, he gives greater grace. A greater grace is given. Greater than what? Greater than our sin. Greater than his jealousy. There is greater grace. And he announces it. The announcement of grace. First, it's declaration. It's declaration. But he gives more or greater grace. That's why I I urge you to consider the charge in the first few verses. Because there is a way out. Our God will will be reconciled with us, even if you've made yourself his enemy. You can be reconciled with your God. There is greater grace. Don't ignore it. He gives a greater grace. Then it's proof. He quotes Proverbs 3.34. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You've made yourself God's enemy. Here God opposes the proud. It's interesting that he brings pride in. Because as of this far, we've talked about desires and coveting. And we've talked about quarreling and fighting. Where does pride come from? Well, pride ultimately undergirds it all. I think I know better. I think I know what I need. I think this wisdom from the world makes more sense to me. I think I'll go this way, not that way. All all of this adoption of worldly values is centered in pride. When we stop acting like dependent children, yes, daddy, thank you, daddy, 
What do you want me to do, Daddy? And we start thinking, well, actually, I kind of think it's coming up in prayer. It's back to the garden, right? I, I want to know for myself. Thank you very much. I want to make my own decisions. I think I know what's best for me. And so he addresses that as pride. Pride. I think I need this more than I need that. I think this is worth disobeying the Lord for. I think I can have my cake and eat it too. So he addresses pride. And the point being this, God has always opposed the proud, and God always, always gives grace to the humble. We sing that song. It's one of my favorite songs here. Broken spirit and a contrite heart you will not despise. One of the things that stays the same through the two covenants is God's grace always being given to the humble and the broken and the contrite. So let me, let me de- make sense of this declaration of grace. Sometimes we think of grace, and it's true insofar as it goes. It's free, it's undeserved, just given. Don't think what James is saying is you can be faithless to the Lord. You can go in your harlotry. You can keep doing that because God gives greater grace. Isn't that wonderful? That's not what he's saying. He made it very clear. If you're doing that, you have made yourself God's enemy. The grace he gives is the grace of repentance. The call to receive the grace, your next point, an earnest call to receive God's grace. Here's how you receive the grace. Notice how at the end of verse 10, we're back to where we just started. He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord. Humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord. So verses 8, 7 through 10 is how to receive that grace. This is not a grace that just everyone gets. He gives a greater grace. How, how do I receive that grace? How do I avail myself of that grace? How do I benefit from that grace? Oh, in short, get on your face. That's what James is saying. Or maybe another way of taking the metaphor would be saying to a husband or a wife who's been unfaithful, your spouse will take you back. If you humble yourself, get on your knees and, and, and repent. That's the greater grace that's given here. So please don't sit there thinking, I can be unfaithful. I can go after other gods. I can worship other things. And isn't it wonderful because God gives more grace? In the context of our text, he gives a greater grace to those who hear the call to repentance. He freely forgives. He freely restores I don't care how unfaithful you've been to the Lord. If you'll heed this call, he will receive you. He will draw near to you. He will exalt you if you will hear this call. An earnest call to receive God's grace. It's like the son of the prodigal, the father of the prodigal son. As soon as his son humbles himself and returns, he greets him with open arms. That's, that's the good news here. That's the good news. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep, and let your laughter return to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself for the Lord, and he will exalt you. That's the greater grace he gives. So let's work through that. First, he calls on us to submit yourselves to God. The idea of the word is to order yourself underneath someone else's authority. 
God has more authority than you, but when you love the world, when you pursue your desires, when you think you know what's best, you live as one not under authority. And so what James is saying is, is get back under the authority of God. Get back under him, submitting to him and to his will. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And I think the next two couplets help demonstrate that. How do I submit myself to God? By not submitting to the devil. He's not your authority. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. So I submit myself to God, and what it means to submit myself to God is to resist the devil and his claims on me. Resist your desires. Resist your cravings. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This is a promise. Temptation is challenging, and frequently we give up before we even try to fight. And, and James is saying, if you will resist, if you will humble yourself and resist, I know your desires and your passions are strong. I know. Mine are as well. But if you will resist, the devil will flee. And then the second part of this, and if you will draw near to God, he will draw near to you. And this is good news to people. He's just said a few verses before, he's your enemy. You've made yourself his enemy. When God's enemies resist the devil, humble themselves, submit to him, and draw near to him, he draws near to them. Listen to Hosea. Similar metaphor of the unfaithful wife. Listen to Hosea 12.6. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. Draw near to God in prayer. Draw near, and this also assumes, again, that our sin has made a separation. First John uses it in terms of light and darkness. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie. Do not practice the truth. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. So first, submit yourself to God. What does that mean? It means an opposition to sin and the devil, to resist it. And it means drawing near to God in prayer, drawing near to God through his word, drawing near to God through his people. And the wonderful promise that Satan will flee and God will draw near. That's, that's greater grace. You don't have to do anything to earn it. You don't pay for it. But God draws near to those who draw near to him. He draws near to those who resist the devil. He draws near to those who submit themselves to him. Point number two, turn from your double-mindedness and sin. Turn from your double-mindedness and sin. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Notice that this turning, this cleaning, is first outwardly and then inwardly. Outwardly and then inwardly. Outwardly, cleanse your hands, you sinners. When the Bible speaks of your hands, it's speaking of your deeds, what you do. The quarrels you've gotten into. The pursuits of your pleasures. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. This is ritual purification language. What he means is stop the evil deeds, the quarreling, the fighting, the bickering, the hypocritical prayers. Stop them. And inwardly, purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's not simply behavior modification the Lord's after. He's after our hearts and our souls after all. Pause. Let me make another point. Um, I've, I've heard people say before that once we're redeemed, we're not sinners anymore. God doesn't call us sinners. James does. 
there's a time and a place to recognize our sin. The danger is we'll deal far too lightly with this. James, again, speaking to the 12 tribes scattering the dispersion, says, Cleanse your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And yes, it's wholly appropriate. And I would freely admit the predominant theme in the New Testament of the identity of the believer is beloved, redeemed, holy, sanctified. There's place and time also to view ourselves as the sinner, the double-minded. So turn from our double-mindedness and sin. Remember that we're double-minded again. Turn back to chapter 1. It's that picture of a split soul. Inwardly divided. Inwardly, I want to serve the Lord and I want to serve my passions. If any of you lacks wisdom, verse 5, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. The one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not expect, suppose to receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man. What makes him double-minded? He's inwardly divided. Just as we saw earlier in chapter 4, you ask and you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. I ask inwardly divided. I come to the living God as a worshiper of things, and I say, gimme. And God says no, because he's jealous for his bride. And so here, James identifies that double-mindedness, that inward division, that we can try to do both, pursue the wisdom of the world, the values of the world, the things of the world, and try to pursue faith in Christ and the Lord God. You can't do it. It won't work. God is too jealous to allow us to perpetually cheat on him and make ourselves his enemy. Third, mourn your breach of faith. Be wretched, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. There is a place for deep grieving, shame and sorrow for sin. We live in a self-esteem world where anything that makes anyone feel bad is viewed as an evil no matter what. Everyone should feel good about themselves all the time. And yet, that lie will keep you from true healing. The grace that comes, comes to those who will take the time to look at and grieve their sin. It's not where they live continually. At the end of this passage, you get exalted. But the exaltation comes through the humiliation and the humility. And so we would do well to to look deeply at and stare in the face, as unpleasant as it is, and feel the grief, the mourning for our sin. And, And a pop psychology that tells you not to is not helping. James tells you to. Now, you shouldn't mourn and weep when you've been faithful. But when you've strayed and when you've been faithless and when you've played the harlot, then it's wholly appropriate to weep and mourn and have low self-esteem or whatever you want to call it. Not as a place to live in perpetually, but as a way of drawing near to God. 
And the Old Testament, again, repeatedly gives these injunctions to God's people. Listen to Joel 2, 12 to 13. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. It's the same call. Same call in Joel, same call here. Humble yourself. A cognate with the word humble is humiliation. And it's that sense of humiliation we feel when we look at our sin and we stop making excuses for our sin and we recognize and own up to what we've really done. Like, oh man. We don't feel good. We like to feel good, so we don't like to do that. And James is saying, if you'll do that and humble yourself, God will draw near to you and he will exalt you. So, be wretched, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. This also echoes the teaching of Jesus as well. Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourning's not an end in itself. It's not a place to live perpetually. Mourning gets us somewhere better. Luke six twenty five. Woe to you. We're full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Everybody's going to mourn and weep. Some people do it in this life over their sin, and they go and be reconciled to the Lord, and they go to heaven, and they get life. And others mourn and grieve and lament in eternal darkness and fire. But everybody's going to do some mourning and lamenting. James, James would advise you to do it now. Do it now. Let your laughter return to mourning and your joy to gloom. And here's why. It's not just the end in itself. He's not just saying you've been very bad and you should feel bad. The whole reason he's prescribing this difficult course of cleansing our hands and changing our hearts and minds and submitting to God and resisting the devil and drawing near to the Lord and and weeping and, and, and mourning is because of verse 10. Humble yourself before the Lord. He will exalt you. James wants you to be exalted. That's that's the end in view. Reconciliation with your God. Peace with your God, not enmity. And being exalted by him. I think he's summarizing what he's just said. Remember, this began with the citation. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. Then he gives us this prescription. And then... Closing out the inclusio, he gives us the whole reason why you might want to do this. If you're looking at this prescription and saying, that sounds unpleasant and painful, and my therapist told me I need to have a positive self-attitude, James is saying, no, no, take, take my prescription. Follow my counsel. Humble yourself. God will exalt you. He will exalt you. You try to exalt yourself, you'll mourn in time. It just may be when it's too late. Humble yourself before the Lord. He will exalt you. Point number one. And I do intend to sing our closing song this morning. He will do more than restore you. This isn't just restoration. This is exaltation. Look at the abundant language. It's not just the Lord God saying, okay, okay, I'll take you back. To those who humble themselves before him, he lifts them up and exalts them. Let me read to you what Isaiah 
says. And this is true of God everywhere and always. Isaiah 57. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. The spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I made because of the iniquity of this, of his unjust gain. I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and he was, and was angry. I've seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. God promises, despite how faithless you've been, despite what other gods you've worshipped, despite what other unfaithfulness you've walked in, that if you can humble yourself, draw near to him, resist the devil, if you can turn from your deeds and your double-mindedness outwardly and inwardly, if you can experience a, a godly grief for your sin, he will draw near to you and he will exalt you. And that is good news. That's greater grace. But you need to see who are the ones who receive that greater grace. Those who draw near to him in faith. Those who have ears to hear his call. He will do more than restore you. Point two, he will do it in his time. I think it's a good thing and something we as believers often do far too seldom. Allowing conviction and the spirit to work godly sorrow in us. Our culture is so quick that when we catch anyone being down, discouraged, we want to just pick them up. And there's something good about that. But if what you're down over is your sin, it may do well. It may be a good thing to dwell there for a while. The Lord, it says, will exalt you. Not you will exalt you. Let's read one verse and then we'll have our closing song. Psalm 30, verse 5. His anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. I would plead with you to do a self-examination, to not deal lightly with your state. There is abundant grace. There's a greater grace. If you tell yourself, I'm well, I'm fine, I'm healthy, I'm good, I'm like this with the Lord, you'll never hear his call to draw near and be humble. I'm going to call the worship team up. Let's sing our closing song. His mercy is more.